You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. I often wonder, if Rod Sailing was alive today, what kind of Twilight Zone episode would he make? We live in a time where every morning when we wake up, it doesn't take long to become overwhelmed by the world screaming in pain. Whether it's by picking up a newspaper, turning on the news, or logging into a social network, The sounds of our failures seem to be constantly drowning out the sounds of our successes. Rage and discontent is everywhere. So what would Rod Serling focus on? Would he look at these big world events? Would he focus on the people who are pulling the strings? Or would he hone in on the personal experience and the toll it takes on the average person to live in this world. We live in a cesspool, a septic tank, a gigantic sewage complex in which runs the dregs, the filth, the misery-laden slop of the race of men, his hatreds, his prejudices, his passions and his violence. And the keeper of this sewer? Man. He is a scientifically advanced monkey who walks upright and with eyes wide open, into an abyss of his own making. His bombs, his fallout, his poisons, his radioactivity, everything he designs as an art for dying is his excuse for living. No, Harvey, we live in in an exquisite bedlam, an insanity, maybe all the more grotesque by the fact that we don't recognize it as insanity. So perhaps Rod Serling already made that Twilight Zone episode that he would make today, when he penned the tale of Paul Driscoll, a man so discontent with his present that he tried to go back and fix the past, to change the things that poisoned the years that followed them. And when fixing the past didn't work, he tried to escape there. But this is a journey that would challenge the notion that there ever was such a thing as the good old days. So tonight let's step onto the podium of Paul Driscoll's time machine and find out if there is no time like the past. Exit one, Paul Driscoll, a creature of the 20th century. He puts to a test a complicated theorem of space-time continuum, but he goes a step further, or tries to. Shortly, he will seek out three moments of the past, 
in a desperate attempt to alter the present. One of the odd and fanciful functions in a shadowland known as the Twilight Zone. First broadcast on March 7th, 1963. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Justice Addis. So tonight we say goodbye to not one of the most prolific of Twilight Zone directors, but a man who has a fairly solid trio of episodes under his belt. Justice Addis first directed what I consider to be a bit of an underrated classic, The Odyssey of Flight 33, and then the solid and enjoyable Rip Van Winkle caper, and finally tonight's episode No Time Like the Past. But unfortunately this was not an episode without its struggles, and we'll get back to that in a moment. But first let's consider the origins of the story itself, and Martin Grams Jr. goes into this pretty heavily in his book Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. And he talks about a one-page plot synopsis that Rod Serling wrote in October 1958, and it was called You Must Go Home Again. In this treatment, we find ourselves in the distant future where Earth has been wrecked by a war, and a decorated military soldier of his time who's recovering from wounds suffered in battle is called by a superior officer and told that he's been given a month to relax and recuperate, and he can spend this in any way that he desires. Now at the time there has been talk of experimenting with time travel, and he asks to go back in time to a different age. Now the superior officer agrees and he suggests going back to see things like the pyramids being built, or something of historical significance, but the young officer shakes his head, and he just wants to visit North America in the late 19th century, a small country town in Illinois just before the turn of the century. So he goes, and he spends time there, and he enjoys the more relaxed way of life. And as time goes on, he discovers that he's very useful to the people there, because he has certain skills that he's brought from the future, like curing chickenpox and fixing lights. And just as he is getting settled down there, by the fourth week, another stranger comes and greets him and tells him that it's time to go back. But the soldier keeps thinking of excuses to try and stay, because the thought of leaving is not one that he wants to face. After the stranger pleads with him, telling him that he needs to think of his family and his country that he is serving, he decides that he will go back to his own time, but just at the last moment, he changes his mind again. And when we last see him, he's walking down the main street on his way to a 4th of July picnic. So as Martin Grams Jr. points out, we can see a few elements here that Rod Serling would recycle into stories like Walking Distance, a stop at Willoughby, and of course, No Time Like the Past. Walking Distance and Willoughby are both considered to be classics, but can he do it a third time? Or has all of this goodness been wrung out of this particular idea? Well, something that doesn't show up in that one-page synopsis are these three scenes that start this episode, where Paul Driscoll 
goes back in time to try and change world events, and that begins with a trip to Hiroshima. Go on, Mr. Driscoll. What I was trying to tell them, and what I'm telling you now, is that within an hour, this city is going to be destroyed, and upward of 60 to 70,000 human beings are going to be killed along with it. So Driscoll goes back to Hiroshima to try and warn them about the nuclear bomb that is going to drop there. He also boards the Lusitania to try and warn them of impending disaster there, and he even sets himself up in a hotel room overlooking where Hitler is making a speech and readies his rifle as if to kill him. Now Mark Zickery in the Twilight Zone Companion is quite critical of this section of the story where Driscoll is trying to alter history. First off, he comments on how Driscoll gets there six hours before the bomb is going to drop on Hiroshima, and in that short amount of time, he doesn't really have enough time to make much of a difference. So why leave yourself with such a short time to do it? And it's the same with the Lusitania, he is there literally moments before the torpedo hits it. Now on the one hand, I think it's quite a fair criticism, that what is the point in not leaving enough time to really change anything? But on the other hand, we don't really know much about the time machine. Now before we talk about that, I think I adore the look of this time machine, this huge tall column with banks of electrics at the top and the lights coming down to the podium that Driscoll stands on. It's got this beautiful retro sci-fi vibe to me, it's like... It's like a more up-to-date version of Dr. Frankenstein's lab. But the episode never tells us how accurate a tool it is. So if he wants to go back before the bomb drops on Hiroshima, would he have to aim for a date before the bomb dropped and hope for the best? And maybe it's always going to be a bit hit or miss as to when he actually lands. And it's something that probably could have been fixed with a simple line or two. So while I see where Mark Zickery is coming from, I think it's something that could have been easily handled in the episode had they chosen to do that. But what Mark Zickery does get wrong is that in the scene where Driscoll is lining up his rifle to shoot Hitler, Zickery writes, Through the sights we see Adolf Hitler. The year is 1939. The place Germany. Driscoll aims and slowly squeezes the trigger. Click. It was just a test run. This is the worst kind of cheat. No assassin in his right mind would get his intended victim centred in the crosshairs of his rifle without intending to fire. Now unfortunately this is completely wrong. Driscoll loads the gun. He gets Hitler in his sights, but then there's a knock on the door after the maid has alerted some German officers about Driscoll. And Driscoll decides not to shoot because they're going to come in. And I guess this could be quite open to criticism as well, because if you're going to be so close to doing it, why not just pull the trigger and then make the time jump? But again, we don't know how the technology works. What does he need to do to get back? Does he need to signal Harvey somehow, who is back in the lab, or is Harvey watching him and pulling him out of time? And would he have enough time to do it before the German officers burst in and shoot Paul. 
So I guess without more details about how the machine works, these are all things that I don't think we really know the details of. But I think the point of these scenes is really just to show that this is a man who has a care about what's going on in his present day and what have been the things that have got them there. What are the great atrocities and disasters of the past that can be changed? So it's showing us that this is something that Driscoll is deeply concerned with. Now if this feels like an episode of two halves, like it's doing one thing and going a particular way for half the episode, but then it suddenly changes course and is going another way, there is actually a very good reason for that. And to explain it, I'm going to read out a passage from Martin Grams Jr.'s book Unlocking the Door to a Television Classic. And it says, The production of this episode suffered from a number of rewrites and poor production. The 1881 sequences, which we'll come to in a moment, pretty much remain the same, but the rest of the episode, Driscoll's purpose for going back in time, and the method by which he travelled, varied from one revision to another. Many of the revisions were made at the insistence of Herbert Hirschman. In the initial draft, set in the near future, Driscoll in his early 40s has invented a time machine and succeeds in sending a chair back to the week of October 8, 1871, the day of the Great Chicago Fire. Having taught under Professor Wiener at college, Driscoll reveals to his friend how he sent a number of items into the past. A paperweight to November 1918, a book to Munich in 1923, and a pen to Geneva, Switzerland in 1920, when the League of Nations began. All of these items returned with little or no damage. He sent an ashtray to Hiroshima, Japan in August of 1945, and the ashtray never came back. Having succeeded in sending material objects into the past, Driscoll has decided to send himself back to Homerville, Indiana, July 1881. His reason? He does not like the surroundings, the background, and the threat of extinction from nuclear war, as revealed on the evening news broadcast on television. The human race is suffering from the effects of nuclear fallout, and humans cope by taking tranquilizers three times a day. So this is all pretty fascinating stuff to me, that some of these things actually I think might have benefited the episode, maybe a little bit of a look at the world that Driscoll lived in, you know, why he was so intent on getting out of there. But it was actually Herbert Hirschman, the producer, who insisted that the script be changed, and Rod Serling acquiesced and changed it. So I'm in two minds about this. I can see that maybe Serling's original intent did maybe need some tweaking here and there, but I do think the story of an inventor who is sick of his surroundings and what the world has become and just wants to escape to the past has a lot more kind of simplicity and grace and poetry to it than the story about someone who recognises how rotten the present is and also recognises how rotten the past is, so he tries to change the past, he can't change the past, so he tries to escape into it, and I guess that becomes a little bit muddled in the telling, but the original take that was never made, I think has a lot more scope for 
examining this almost universal belief that people have that the past was the good old days, that things were always better in the past. Because I think in this episode, the second half is really where the story is. That's the human story. That's where the interactions are. And that's where Paul learns his lessons. So I think you could pretty much chop off these scenes where Driscoll is trying to change the past and just have some dialogue where he's saying, how terrible is the world today? I don't like it anymore. I want to escape it. Something along those lines. Now that's not to say that I think what we get doesn't work completely. I think it's just a bit clumsier and it doesn't have that nice flow to it. But I do still kind of like the idea of someone on a mission to change the past, but then losing faith in the whole enterprise and giving up on humanity completely and just tucking himself away in the place that he thinks will be out of the way enough that he doesn't have to worry about any of this anymore. So it wasn't just a case of some rewrites being done. The early scenes of Paul in the lab with Harvey and the three scenes of Paul going back in time to change the past. All of this was reshoots that was done after initial filming was complete. You must know now, Paul, that the past is inviolate. Whatever has happened must remain as having happened. You can't change anything. I believe you. I believe that it's not possible to alter the past. And it follows that because of that impossibility, there isn't anything we can do about the present or the future. A study of 19th century Midwest America? Open that to page 90. It talks about a particular place there, a place called Homeville, Indiana. Well, there's a picture that shows how it looked in 1881. Oh, this is charming. Parasols, bicycles. It's all very serene. Apropos of what, Paul? Apropos of the fact that I'm going back there. I'm going back not to change anything, but to become a part of it. A world of band concerts and summer nights on front porches. A world that never heard of an atomic bomb, a world war, a germ warfare, or anything else. That's where I'm going, Harvey. All right. Paul Driscoll is played by Dana Andrews and he was born in 1909 in Mississippi. And as a younger man, he took many jobs like driving a school bus and pumping gas after he hitchhiked to California to try and be a movie star, just like the first Twilight Zone leading man, Earl Holliman. And although he was unsuccessful at breaking into the movies at first, his employer at the gas station he was working at believed in him and agreed to invest in his acting training as long as he agreed to pay him back if he made it. And he did make it. He did his training, he paid his dues on stage and in 1940 made his movie debut in not one but four movies. And if you look at his resume he spent the 40s doing at least two movies a year, sometimes up to four. And this streak continued through the 50s making Dana Andrews a constantly working actor. Now as IMDB says that he was a dependable presence on screen, but the films he was getting were unremarkable. Now I'm no expert on films of that era and when I look down his credits I can kinda see why that is possible. But there is one film in particular 
that does jump out at me, and that is the 1957 film Zero Hour, in which he played Lieutenant Ted Stryker. Now I know what you're saying, surely you can't be serious, but I am serious, and don't call me Shirley. Zero Hour was a film about a passenger flight where the pilots get sick from food poisoning and fighter pilot Ted Stryker has to step up and land the plane. And if that sounds familiar, it's because Zero Hour is the film that the 1980 Zucker Brothers movie Airplane was a spoof of. Now if you've ever seen Airplane and then you watch Zero Hour, it's now become impossible to take Zero Hour seriously because the two movies are actually very close in many of the scenes and Airplane is actually a shot for shot remake a good portion of the time. And the deadpan delivery by the likes of Leslie Nielsen and Robert Hayes in Airplane now makes the delivery of their Zero Hour counterparts unintentionally funny. I heard about that meeting at headquarters this morning. You're taking all the blame for what happened in that raid. It's a pretty courageous thing to do. Was it? Because of my mistake, six men didn't return from that raid. We got a telegram from headquarters today. Headquarters? What is it? Well, it's a big building where generals meet, but that's not important right now. They've cleared you of any blame for what happened on that raid. Isn't that good news? Is it? Because of my mistake... Six men didn't return from that raid. Seven Lieutenant Zip died this morning. The steward is said. But both pilots, can you fly this airplane and land it? No, not a chance. Doctor, I'll ask everyone. Mr. Stryker's the only one. What flying experience have you had? Well, I was a fighter pilot in the war, but I flew little combat planes with only one engine. This has four. There's no comparison. The flying characteristics are completely different. It's a different kind of flying altogether. The stewardess said... Both pilots. Can you fly this plane and land it? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious. And don't call me Shirley. Doctor, I've checked everyone. Mr. Stryker's the only one. What flying experience have you had? Oh, I flew single-engine fighters in the Air Force, but this plane has four engines. It's an entirely different kind of flying, altogether. It's, it's an, an entirely, entirely different, different kind of flying. So when we find Dana Andrews in the Twilight Zone, he has a good two decades of movie work behind him. But he also dabbled a bit in television in the early 60s before heading back to the movies, and he worked in both up until his retirement in the mid-1980s. And his work did slow down some over the years because he had a constant battle with alcoholism. But also when he diversified into real estate, that took up his time too. And he reportedly said that he made more money doing that than he ever made in the movies. So how is he in this? I think he does just fine. I think he's... Probably not top of anyone's Twilight Zone actor lists because he belongs to that caliber of actor who just comes to the show, does a perfectly solid and acceptable job, but doesn't really wow you that much. He's just good, you know? But I have to give him extra credit 
forgetting his mouth around some pretty chewy sailing dialogue at times. So after that doesn't work, Paul heads back in time to Homeville, a place where a man can slow down to a walk and live his life full measure. I'll have a beer. That'll be nickel. A nickel? That's a price tag. You got a nickel? You from around here? No. No, I'm from out of state. Out of state, you say? Just passing through? No, as a matter of fact, I was thinking of settling down here. Just as I expected. Boarding house across the square. Mar Chamberlain's place. Real nice accommodations. You're in the clean place. Gonna stay there? For the present. So here the Willoughby comparisons are pretty clear. This idyllic version of the past. People riding penny farthings, beers for a nickel. What more could you want in life? But Paul's contentment doesn't last long because he sees a newspaper headline about the president, President Garfield, attending some commencement exercises at Williams College, and this causes him some alarm. Now over this side of the pond, I think we generally know about Lincoln being assassinated, we know about JFK of course, but perhaps the fate of President Garfield isn't quite so well known over here. So for the uninitiated, we are talking about President James A. Garfield, who became the 20th President of the United States on March 4, 1881. But only about four months later, at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station, he was shot, and after 11 weeks in intensive care, he passed away. So while the introductory scenes that we spoke about earlier on were later additions, I suppose what they do is foreshadow this moment where Paul is taking some time out to wrestle with this decision, should he try and change it, should he try and save the president, but in the end, he says, so be it. He has to learn to let the past be the past. Nuclear fallout. Indochina. Berlin Wall. What are you? I never heard of you. It's summer. First of July. There's going to be a band concert in a couple of days. Lemonade. Fireworks. It's 1881. Homeville, Indiana. And I'm home. So when I think about what this episode is about for me, this is the thing that I latched onto. He's talking about all these great follies of humankind, like the Berlin Wall, but he's firmly made up his mind that he's going to close the door on them and focus on living his life with what's in front of them. So it's about this balance between having care and compassion for things going on in the world around you versus taking care of oneself. Do you spend your time driving yourself crazy 
about the things going on in the world that you can't change or do you focus on what's in front of you? This is a man who has lost faith in humanity but also the, the great follies of humanity he feels the weight of them as well that he should be able to do something about them. So this is certainly a conversation that is ripe for the twilight zone and certainly a conversation that is ripe for the modern day. So the next thing that he does is to log into Twitter. I mean, he goes to breakfast. And I tell you, Mrs. Chamberlain, that until this government of ours assumes its rightful place of responsibility in the world, we will remain an isolated, terribly provincial, static community of states. You know what I say we should do about it? I'll tell you what we should do. We should take the American fleet, send it over to the Orient, and plant the American flag. Then on down to Australia, and back across the Pacific to South America, planting the American flag as we go. Planting her deep, planting her high, planting her proud. I think when we are worn down by the constant stream of news, news, news these days, on things like Twitter, I think we can all identify with Paul's weariness, and I think I can also identify with his speech, which we'll hear in a moment, which is pure rod sailing, where Paul calls out this person who sits talking with the authority of an expert, and it really speaks to the proliferation of armchair experts that we see as well today. You're some kind of pacifist, are you, Driscoll? No, I'm just some kind of sick idiot who's seen too many young men die because of too many old men like you who fight their battles at dining room tables. I take offense at that remark, Mr. Driscoll. And I take offense at armchair warriors who don't know what a shrapnel wound feels like or what death smells like after three days in the sun. Or the look in a man's eyes when he realizes he's minus a leg and his blood is seeping out. Mr. Hanford, you have a great enthusiasm for planting the flag deep. But you don't have a nodding acquaintance with what it's like to bury men in the same soil. I'll not sit here and take talk like that. No, no. You'll go back to your bank and it'll be business as usual until the next dinner time when you'll give us another of your vacuous speeches about a country growing strong by filling its graveyards. Well, you're in for some gratifying times, Mr. Hanford, you can believe me. There'll be a lot of graveyards for you to fill. In Cuba, then in France, then all over Europe and all over the Pacific. And you can sit on the sidelines and wave your penance because according to your definition, this country is going to get virile as the devil, from San Juan to Inchon. We'll show how red our blood is because we'll spill it. There are two unfortunate aspects of this. One is that you won't have to spill any. And the other is you won't live long enough to know I'm right. A violent man. What I find interesting here is that the character of Hanford is this man who is preaching all of this stuff about how America should slaughter the Indians and invade foreign countries. But after Paul gives his speech, the other male dinner guest 
who had been hanging on Hanford's every word, says that Paul is a violent man. Hanford preaches violence, but it's the person who opposes that violence who gets labelled as the violent one. So that was a speech that caught the attention of the lady sat next to Paul, Abigail Sloan, who is a school teacher in the town, and one of the things that I have seen some criticism of in this episode is that Paul and Abigail seem to fall in love in the space of five minutes. It's like a Disney movie where the princess and the prince agree to be married in the space of a very short time. And I guess while I see that criticism, I would disagree. I think we need to kind of lean into the romance of this one, and I think we need to look at who they are and what they're looking for in their lives, and then consider what would happen if we found someone who was not only the antidote to where you come from, but shared your vision of where you would like to go. Someone who seemed to be the missing piece, rather than just someone who you grew to like. Paul is a man who's grown to hate where and when he comes from. We don't really see a glimpse of that world, but we know what's important to him and what he's sick of. Now earlier on, Abigail says that Paul looks like a man in love, with a moment or a place, and he is, because he wants an escape from the noise of the world, a simpler life in a simpler place. And then, there's Abigail. You've got to forgive school teachers, they're very impressionable. They're inclined to, well, they're inclined to read many things into a glance, a word, a touch. Well, I've got a very busy day today. There's so much preparation for tomorrow, you know. Parade at nine, speeches at 11, games from noon till five, picnic supper and then fireworks, and oh, of course, my children. Your children? Yes. 27 flat little voices. 14 boys, 13 girls who entertain you with their own rendition of Columbia, the gem of the ocean, sung in six different keys with 27 highly individual interpretations. Abigail has a simpler life in a simpler place, but she needs something more. She has to put up with the likes of Hanford every day. There's nobody around who she feels is like her, which is why it's such a revelation to her when Paul speaks up. For the first time, she's met someone who not only shares the same opinions as her, but could be the missing thing in her life. She loves her job as a teacher, but there's nobody to share the other times with. And as we've just heard from her speech about the children, she is a woman who can see the magic in things that other people would find mundane or annoying or strange. A classroom full of kids singing out of tune. So who wouldn't want to fall in love with someone who has that ability to see such magic in things? So while they do fall for each other fast, this isn't just a case of two people meeting and growing to love each other really quickly. This is two people who had a longing for something. I get the impression that she was living in this place where nobody really fitted her, and she wondered whether a man like Paul actually existed. And then all of a sudden, 
there he was. And while Paul wasn't necessarily looking for love, he just wanted that simpler life, he actually found the love that he never knew he wanted. So Abigail Sloan is played by two-time Twilight Zone player Patricia Breslin, who returns to the show after appearing in the classic season 2 episode, Nick of Time. So I won't do a full bio on her here because I hope I did one back when I reviewed the episode way back then, but to be honest there isn't a great deal to say about her because her career was pretty short in some respects. She worked regularly between 1950 and 1969, but then she retired completely, so a 19 year acting career is certainly very respectable. And I like her in this, I watched Nick of Time recently and to be honest I think she does a great job of playing a different character and I didn't even recognise her until I saw the credits. This schoolhouse for example. I'll bet it's 60 years old as she stands there. I expect it'll probably keep standing till somebody pulls it down. What was that? I'm just talking about that school building. I know, but what did you say about it? Just that it'll probably keep standing till... That's it. That's what I was trying to remember. The school building. The school building. Oh my God. My dear God. Now I've kind of brushed past the whole president plot which goes on in the background where he has the choice is he going to try and rescue the president or not because it does seem to be in the background it seems to be there for him to have to have that moral quandary about if he's going to do anything about it and it's more of a base for what comes next because in the last act here in Homeville Paul is struggling with what to do about this schoolhouse burning down. So I guess if the opening scenes do anything, they do set up that this is a man who thinks that altering the past is actually a good thing in the beginning, but then realises that it's something he shouldn't really do. But when he is tucked away in time, he struggles to let things happen, if he has knowledge of them. He just about lets the attack on President Garfield happen, but when he comes face to face with the possibility of 12 school children being hurt in a fire, he just can't stand by. Now originally the fire was supposed to completely burn down the schoolhouse, but when it was realised that they were going to be doing it in a brick building, they thought it would be easier to just show some damage, so they changed it to being gutted by fire. And when a travelling salesman, Professor Elliot, no relation, comes to town with a lantern hanging precariously on his wagon, Paul ends up interfering and causing the very accident that he hoped to stop. And finally, he realises that he can't stay anymore. This was a first time watch for me, but through being immersed in the Twilight Zone world for so long now, I had heard the occasional whisper about no time like the past. And those whispers tended to say that this story of a man who wanted to retreat into a simpler time in the past was simply a retread of Walking Distance or Willoughby, a mashup of ideas that Serling had done better before. And I can definitely see that point of view, you know, 
Paul himself, near the end of the episode, makes a speech to Abigail that is very similar to one that Martin Sloane's father said to Martin in Walking Distance about not being able to go back. And then when Paul gets back to his own time, he makes this speech. And now, Paul, where do you go now? Here. Here in the 20th century, where I belong. That's what I've learned, Harvey. I leave the yesterdays alone. Do something. Do something about the tomorrows. They are the ones that count. The tomorrows. Tomorrows. God, let there be tomorrows. Which does kind of have echoes of Martin Sloan's conclusions in Walking Distance. Martin. Is it so bad where you're from? I thought so, Pop. I've been living at a dead run and I was tired. And one day I knew I had to come back here. I had to come back and get on a merry-go-round and eat cotton candy and listen to a band concert. I had to stop and breathe and close my eyes and smell and listen. I guess we all want that. Maybe when you go back, Martin, you'll find that there are merry-go-rounds and band concerts where you are. Maybe you haven't been looking in the right place. You've been looking behind you, Martin. Try looking ahead. They are undoubtedly similar, but that's not to say that no time like the past doesn't have its own things to say. If walking distance is Martin Sloan's personal cry for help, a man who has become disillusioned with his own life and wanting to escape into his own past, no time like the past's canvas is bigger. This is a man trying to escape the noise of the world. It's a man disappointed with humanity. It's the world's turmoil that he wants to escape and not his own. And has there ever been a Twilight Zone episode that has become so incredibly relevant so many years after it was made? Probably, because it happens pretty often. But I can't help thinking that once again, sailing seems to have tapped into a feeling that a lot of us are having right now. That the human race is pretty hopeless, and that we wish we could just escape it all. That the noise of everything going on is just too much. In Walking Distance, Martin Sloan realized that he needed to seek out the bandstands and the merry-go-rounds in his own present. Paul Driscoll came to a similar conclusion that he had to make his future better rather than hiding in the past, even if there was only so much that he could do. But the realization is bittersweet because in his travels through time, He's realized that the good old days are a myth. That all through time, struggles exist. Some different, but many the same. And bad things happen. And you might even fall in love in the wrong place and the wrong time. So if the past is just as bad as the present, what hope do we have for the future? Incident on a July afternoon, 1881. A man named Driscoll who came and went and, in the process, learned a simple lesson. Perhaps best said by a poet named Lathbury, who wrote, Children of yesterday, heirs of tomorrow, what are you weaving? Labor and sorrow? 
Look to your looms again, faster and faster fly the great shuttles prepared by the master. Life's in the loom, room for it, room. Tonight's tale of clocks and calendars in the Twilight Zone. So there we go, no time like the past. And to pun a little, I'm afraid quite a bit of time has passed between now and our last episode. Um, Life gets a bit busy sometimes, unfortunately. And I think my goal of getting season four finished by the end of this year is probably a little ambitious. But we still have time. We still have time and I will get as many as I can done because then we'll be on to season five. We'll be on the home straight. Not that the home straight for me is ever going to be that quick, but at least we'll be on it. So in the meantime, the 61st anniversary of the Twilight Zone has passed. It's been and gone. I hope you got to mark it somehow. I can't believe that it was a year ago uh, that I was in Binghamton. And unfortunately, because of everything going on, uh, we couldn't do it this year. But what a gift that I got to do it that year. And that was from the kindness of the listeners of this show that I was able to do it with people's contributions, people sending me money just at random for my airfare and things like that. You know, you just can't put a price on that kind of thing. I, I really appreciated it. But onwards and upwards, hopefully next year, uh, we will have that chance again. So fingers crossed, fingers crossed. So we do have some listener feedback, but in the meantime, I want to say thank you to some new members of the After Hours Club, that strange place that we call home over on Patreon, at patreon.com slash Podcast, where you can get extra podcasts on things like the 1980s show, Night Gallery, Rod Serling's other series, The Loner, um, commentary tracks on episodes of The Twilight Zone that I've already covered, and all manner of things. There's quite a big archive over there at the moment now, so so if you want to support the show, it's a good time to jump on board. And I want to say thank you to new members, Mark Kelly. Thank you, Mark. Eric Saunders as well. Thanks for joining the club. Christian Segura, thank you for joining uh, the After Hours Club. And Vera Bible, thank you so much for joining, Vera. I know you've been a listener for a long time now, so thanks for jumping on board as well. Okay, so that is enough from me. Let's go over to some friends of the show to hear what they think of tonight's episode or past episodes in season four so far. And I will speak to you next time. Hey, Tom, Chad here with a couple thoughts on Printer's Devil. This was one of my favorite season four episodes. Uh, Again, I haven't seen anything in season four until now and it was really helpful to have listened to the original source material for this story on the podcast beforehand Uh, from memory the ending of the original short story was you know the deal had been made with the devil you had the valid contract but they bring in the sort of ringer attorney whose case is essentially all the elements of forming a valid contract are here, but you should vote for my client anyway because America is the land of freedom and he should get out of jail free. And everybody celebrates and throws babies into the air and uh, justice prevails and the devil loses. I found that kind of an annoying ending 
to the short story, but I'm sure that it was the crowd pleaser that it was uh, intended to be just because a contract is a contract. <laughs> there is no, you know, hey, America, freedom. So anyway, uh, I didn't know what they were going to do in the adaptation, and I really loved this, uh, the performances. I loved the story. This was one of my favorites. So even my bone picking with the ending doesn't uh, diminish my view of the episode itself. Uh, Burgess Meredith's performance is absolutely uh, brilliant, as always. I love seeing him sort of play the heel in this one as opposed to playing the baby face in uh, Time Enough at Last, and I think he was in a, another couple of episodes, but um, I found the ending to this one again a little bit of a cheap way out because it seemed like it was going to come down to the protagonist having to fulfill his contract and sacrifice himself with the revolver that the devil leaves on the table, you know, at the last minute as the car chase car crash is about to happen. Um, and that sort of harkened back to uh, one for the angels where it was, okay, the salesman is going to make his big pitch, but when it comes down to it, he's going to sacrifice himself for the other person to save the little girl. And here you've got, um, I'm forgetting her name, but she was the, the female protagonist and she was the one that was kind of smart to the devil the whole time. She was the one that had it figured out. She was the one that stood up to him on multiple occasions and had the courage that the male protagonist didn't have. So I, I thought those were great elements elements too really uh, added to the story but instead of him sacrificing himself and and fulfilling his deal uh, he kind of realizes well they made the modifications were made to the printing press and I'm going to use that to just type up a story where the devil gives up and goes away and that's what he does and it's the happy ending and it's get out of jail free and you know everybody's happy still loved the episode but I I just didn't like that ending. I kind of thought the Twilight Zone has made some courageous choices before. Um, you know, the, the waiting pool and even, um, even one for the angels, you know, like there's a consequence, there's a price to pay and they haven't shied away from taking the sort of more difficult ending. So in this one, I felt like it was a little more of the happy ending, a little more of the crowd pleaser, the, you know, you don't have to suffer for your own mistakes and sins. You know, you can find a clever way out. And uh, I found that a little unsatisfying. But on the whole, this was a fantastic episode. And there was this one little scene where Burgess is still, it's sort of a slow burn. And you're still kind of not supposed to know that he's the villain or the devil. But he just gives this one second of facial expression where he goes from looking like the sweet old man to looking like a gargoyle. And it was uh, when he was confronted about the fire at the other uh, printing press. And it was just masterfully done, just a beautiful performance, a uh, beautiful story, and really enjoyed this one. So thought I'd send over these thoughts. Uh, hopefully it's not too late. And we're shucking along almost done with season four and uh best wishes take care hey tom hey podcast listeners this is travis from southern california reporting in in the immortal words of stained it's been a while since i left some feedback last time i chimed in was for the season four premiere and i kept telling myself that i was gonna submit feedback for every episode you've done since then including the second season of the latest reboot, and I just never got around to it. Insofar as uh, the 2020 season is concerned, I think it was leagues better than uh, the first season. 
of the reboot, and yet I still can't imagine myself ever rewatching it for leisure or even really recommending it, recommending it to anyone. Uh, there's just so much media out there for us to consume in this day and age, and I just can't justify telling someone to spend any of their time watching Joel McHale get outsmarted by an octopus. Uh, but I'm not here really to talk about uh, the Jordan Peele season. I'm here to talk about season four of the original run, more specifically, No Time Like the Past. I like No Time Like the Past a lot, and I, I think it sort of feels like a forgotten third chapter in a trilogy of episodes that contains A Stop at Willoughby and Walking Distance. Uh, those two episodes are often paired together for obvious reasons, and I feel like uh, it's not a great logical leap to see how this episode would perfectly pair with those. It's really just an amalgamation of uh, those two episodes' plots. Uh, it's like a man, he longs to return to what is perceived to be an idyllic past, a la walking distance. And uh, the past that he chooses specifically is some 19th century Middle American whistle stop filled with parasols and band concerts, a la a stop at Willoughby. Uh, even the ending sentiment mirrors walking distance in that Dana Andrews decides that, you know, trying to, to change the past is a, like a, a Sisyphean effort and that it's best instead to savor the challenges and the, the promise of the future. You know, like I said, this is an episode that I really like, and it's probably my favorite of the hour longs. I like it so much that when I was uh, in college back in 2000, the very first animated short I made was named No Time Like the Past. All that being said, I am aware of the episode's flaws, and I know it's certainly not above criticism. Uh, for me, the biggest flaw is the main character himself, Paul Driscoll. I mean, could we find a more listless time traveler if we searched? I mean, the dude goes back in time with the express intent of scientifically finding out if he can change the events of the past. So what does he do? He, he chooses to go back 12 minutes before this friggin' ship gets sunk. Or, or, you know, he thinks that four hours is enough time to evacuate an entire city. And then, you know, his plan fails and he goes, well, hey, that's all the proof I need. I, I did everything humanly possible and the past refused to change. Case closed. You know, plus what kind of scientists, you know, on the most important universe-altering mission loses his temper so quick i mean he's out here trying to you know he's out here doing the lord's work trying to assassinate hitler but then he let some some maid get under his skin at this hotel because she's predictably got you know this sense of national pride you know all that light ribbing aside i think it's in character for me to be a huge fan of the episode i think i like just about every episode of the twilight zone that involves time travel or or even episodes that involve people living in, I don't know, like simpler times, I guess. I'm a big fan of like the Earl Hamner Jr. style episodes, to give you an idea. I mean, it's incredibly easy, and as of late, incredibly tempting, to allow myself to, to grow nostalgic for the past, to want to return to uh, a simpler time. Now, of course, an educated person would say something like, well, you know, things have always been rough. You know, there was more disease in the past. You marginalized people had it way worse in the past. You know, TV only had eight channels, and... Yeah, I suppose that's true. I mean, only an idiot would disregard those facts. But man, do you remember being young? Do you remember when new music sounded good to you? Do you remember when our planet wasn't on fire and we weren't afraid to breathe air next to people we've known our entire lives? Remember when you didn't constantly know everyone's opinions on everything because of social media? Do you remember a time before WAP wasn't the number one song on Spotify? Do you remember being in love? Man. Screw it. Harvey, send me back! Hey 
Hey, Tom and listeners, Zach Moore here with my thoughts on No Time Like the Past. This episode really feels like two different episodes of The Twilight Zone that were put together. Um, because The Twilight Zone does time travel a lot, and I, I love time travel. It's one of my favorite uh, sci-fi concepts right, in fiction, because you always ponder like oh what if this happened or what if someone stopped this before that and what would change and you know so much great sci-fi and fiction has come from the idea of time travel and many there's many forms of time travel as well the many forms it takes there are they're just endless story possibilities right and so this episode is like it decides to do one half telling one story and the other half another story and if I told you, if I just was, if I was sitting around talking to you about episodes of the Twilight Zone, I could say, "Hey, remember the one where the guy goes back in time to all the big historical events and tries to change them, but he can't?" And you'd be like, "Oh yeah, that one." And then if I said, "Hey, remember that episode of the Twilight Zone where that guy goes to live in the past, but he realizes he can't because he'd keep interfering with it because he's a historian and he knows too much about the future?" And you'd be like, "Oh yeah, I remember that one." And then I told you those are the same episode. You'd be like, "What?" <laughs> because that's how this feels. Because the 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 message is contradictory. The first half, he's like, no matter what I do to go back and change things, history's set. And then in the second half, it's, I can't live in the past. I'm going to cause too much history. I, this just doesn't make any sense to, to, to reconcile those two. Because the thing is, there's different rules for time travel, right? You have your Terminator rules and your Back to the Future rules. And, you know, for example, you guys know what I'm talking about who are into, into this stuff. And... The Twilight Zone has different rules for the different times it uses time travel. Uh, so, and that's fine, but you can't do the same in the same story in the same universe, right? Because this is the same Twilight Zone experience this guy's having. And uh, I don't know, but the, the thing is, I rewatching it, I enjoyed it more than I remembered. Because I remember that this bothering me, you know, about this episode. It's inconsistent stance on time travel and what the message is. You know, I guess the message at the end would still apply, like, live for tomorrow, the past is is done. But this is this episode, you know, it feels like a, a, a remix of so many other episodes, you know, back there where they try to save Lincoln. Even, you know, we have Garfield here. He doesn't try to interfere with, with Garfield getting assassinated, but that, that is there. We have, um, of course, a stop at Willoughby and walking distance you know homewood is the town all these twilight zone towns um the the obsession with band concerts in the past <laughs> you know, they've mentioned band concerts multiple times uh shout out to the french horn player by the way i played french horn uh in high school and uh a lot of people when i ask when people find out i was in band or a marching band they're like what did you play and i say what do you think i played and they never guess because people forget that the French horn exists. It's not a trumpet. It's not a trombone. It's a French horn. And extra shout out for the fact that he's playing and then he adjusts his his slides and you know, all those those tubes on on the horn. And he gets asked, "Hey, what's uh, what's up?" And he's like, ah, "I'm a little flat." That's exactly what you do when you are flat. You pull out or, or push in your your slides accordingly. So so shout out to the French horn. Not an instrument I get to see a lot of representation of. So I was very excited to see it. Um, I don't know how that guy knew him, by the way. I was like, did we meet this character before? He's like, hey, Mr. So-and-so. And they just have a conversation. Uh, but anyway, all that to say, yeah, this episode, it would have it been better served if it were two different episodes. Because it really is just two different episodes. Uh, major Back to the Future 3 vibes. By the way, the, uh, the, the scientist time traveler falls in love with a teacher. 
Uh, I mean, that came out 30 years after that, right? So, you know, I, I'm sure I'm sure Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale took some inspiration from the Twilight Zone with all their their time travel adventures. But yeah, I, I just um, I, I I did like the different uh, parts of it, but they just they don't fit together, right? So it's it's less than the sum of its parts this episode, and and then the whole mechanics of time travel. I'm like, how does this work, right? How is he going from like he's on this platform in the present, but then he's in the past and he's he's just jumping because he goes from you know Hiroshima to Germany to the Lusitania. I'm like, is he triggering that himself? How's that happening? Like, again, you split this into episodes. You spend more time talking about the mechanism of the time travel, right? Because when you're jumping back and forth, those you ask those questions, right? In the second half, it's like, oh, he went back to the past and he came back, and that's all there was to it. But when he's jumping through all the the you know, the time period, you're like, wait, is he going back to the platform? Is he not? Um, and then, then you know, the, the, they try to do a twist at the end of, obviously, you know, he's going to try and kill Hitler um, in that one. By the way, like, I w- I'm not, I wouldn't let uh, housekeeping inter- interfere with my plans to stop an evil dictator if that was my mission going back in time, right? He's like, oh, well, like, fresh towels. Well, Hitler can wait. I got fresh towels. <laughs> but uh, the other two were like, let history show that, America tried to save the people of Hiroshima, right? I'm like, oh, it's Hiroshima! And then the zoom into the Lusitania plaque, like these these mini twists they try. Um, finally, shout out to uh, to the guy that played the Japanese official uh, in Hiroshima. Uh, he uh, was in King Kong vs. Godzilla, the American version. I recognized him because th- that was filmed just a few years after this, and he's wearing those same big glasses, so he's, he's very recognizable. Uh, so shout out to him. And uh, finally... Uh, kudos to them for having the people in Japan speak Japanese and the people in Germany speak German. I, I that's a nice touch. I think. I mean, they didn't feel the need to translate, and it just had an extra era of authenticity. So there's a lot about this episode I, I do like, but it, but ultimately, like I said, I think it's less than the sum of its parts because there's a lot of cool potential here. But putting these two stories together just didn't quite work. Um, so yeah, those are my thoughts on No Time Like the Past. Hey, what's up, Tom? This is Uncommon NASA giving you some quick audio feedback for No Time Like the Past. Uh, Definitely one of my top five uh, or even higher uh, episodes from season four. I think there are a couple of flaws in it that I can get into after, but I wanted to point out what I really loved about this episode, which is the dialogue. Um, It's one of the best written dialogues for a main character in the whole series, to me, um, I've actually gone back and sampled it twice for two different songs that I've done over the years, because it's just a, a fountain, a wealth of, of incredible speech. And it is the most Serling voiced character um, that I think Serling wrote for the Twilight Zone. It certainly sounds like him speaking. And I've always liked that about Serling's writing is that it has a voice, and when you watch Serling interviews, you realize that that voice is his. And I think the best writers are able to do that, but put it into the mouths of different characters, as I think Serling did really well. But this particular performance very much sounds like him. Um, he could have maybe stood in and, and acted it himself had he had he really wanted to act. But Dana Edwards, as he comes in, faithfully reproduces what's on the page and adds this over-the-top passion to it. And it's for a good reason. 
it's not just to be faithful to Serling, who was clearly passionate about these subjects, but it's also to add a self-righteousness to the character in order to make the comeuppance make sense. So a lot of times in the Twilight Zone, they don't just give you one message. They give you competing messages. They give you two messages. And that's why, like, from the new series, um, the episode from season two of Jordan Peele's run, A Small Town, displays this best. That episode from the new series gives you sort of like two sides of the same coin of, you know, he's trying to help the town, but there's also a message of, like, you know, when you help too much, you might not get the credit you deserve, and that could create a problem for you as well. And there, there's several layers to that episode, and there's several layers to this episode in the fact that clearly the main character has his head on straight, is righteous, and understands what he believes and what he rightfully thinks the world should believe. But at the same time, he has to learn in this episode that if you take that too far, you could end up being the problem. And that's the balance in life, right? You know, like that's that's part of like learning how to be a good employee. You know, if you're working for somebody, I, I've worked in the past at jobs where if you identify a problem, you own that problem. That's That's you now. You, not only do you have to fix it, but you're basically the cause of it because you pointed it out. And I think to relate that to this episode, you know, in life, you have to know the balance. You have to know who you're dealing with. You have to know the situation you're in. And whether you shouting from the mountaintop that something is incorrect and unfair is the best way to make it less incorrect and unfair, you have to be the judgment call of how to approach it. You know, is this a screaming match to make sure that people understand your point? Or is this a situation where more nuance is needed? And to some degree, that's what this episode gives me in terms of what it's trying to say. And I think that's why the character was perhaps to some people, I'm I'm guessing, maybe overacted. Because he has to be overly righteous. He has to be a bit arrogant or else there's no lesson for him. Because what he's saying in words, in print, how could anyone dispute what he's saying? How can anyone dispute his exchange with the other professor when he's about to go through time? How can anyone dispute trying to assassinate Hitler before the Holocaust? How can anyone dispute the conversation he has at the dinner table um, rallying against war and against American imperialism? But it's the way that he goes about these things and the way that he does these things that puts a light on him where you have to question his methods and his approaches, not because they're wrong, but because they're not going to get the desired result. And that's pretty powerful to, to put into uh, an early 1960s sci-fi slash drama program. Um, and I think it's brilliant. It's, it's a great episode. The one thing I would point out that that is a problem with this episode is it does suffer a bit from the length. I think it's a shame because there's so much brilliance in this episode. There are some laggy sort of love story things sewn into it that you have to have that for the setup or else he doesn't do what he does with the um, with the horse-drawn carriage and trying to prevent the fire. He has to, I guess he has to have that personal interest in the school 
but I think anyone would stop a fire if they knew that it was going to happen. So there's just a little bit of padding with the love story um, that lets it drag that I wish wasn't there. If this was a 30-minute episode, it would probably be on a lot of people's top lists in terms of content and dialogue type episodes. And so I'll leave it there. Um, No Time Like the Past, one of my favorite episodes of season four. And I've been watching along with you, Tom. I didn't get to Printer's Devil yet. And I didn't need to watch No Time Like the Past because I know it really well. I've watched it many, many times for entertainment and for sampling purposes. So um, check this one out if you haven't heard it. if you're listening it it is it is definitely an example of of one of the quote-unquote good ones i think from from season four rod serling creator of the twilight zone will tell you about next week's story after this message if you want to get your thoughts onto the show then email tom at the twilightzonepodcast.com with a clip of around five minutes long about the next episode or a past episode in season four So to find out what that next episode is, let's go over to Rod Serling. And now, Mr. Serling. Next on Twilight Zone, we take a page out of a book on the space age, and we project just a couple of degrees as to what conceivably might happen to an astronaut if suddenly and inexplicably, in the middle of an orbit, he disappears. Our story tells you how, why, and where. It stars Steve Forrest. It's called The Parallel. Capcom. Capcom, this is Phoebus 10. I've lost contact with you. I've lost radar here. I've lost radar. We don't have contact here either. Capcom. Capcom, this is Phoebus 10. What you just told me is fantastic. I helped build that spacecraft. I know it very well. It's not the same one we sent off. It's almost a twin to it, down to the very last nut and bolt, but it's simply not the same spacecraft. Colonel Gaines went up in one spacecraft, but he's obviously come back in another. (laughs) 